Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. But if you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up. Uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew chapter 5. I know last week I kind of had us all over the place, so I'm going to give you all a break this week. We're just going to be in one location today. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. The four Gospels telling about Jesus' life and ministry here on this earth. So in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples in this passage. And he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say thank you for your word. We want to say thank you for all the amazing things we've seen you do. Father, we want to thank you for stories of people like Lee, who've come to know you, for people in her village coming to know you. We thank you for stories just from Trent and uh, Katie as, as, they've, as they've been serving faithfully. And Father, I pray for us as, as we are looking at vision and how you call us to serve our community. Father, give us continued reminders of yourself. Show us where the next moves are. Father, I pray for us as we look at your word this morning. God, I pray, Lord, you remove any distractions that might be at the corners of our mind. Help us dial in. Help us see you. In your name we pray. Amen. So you've been with us for the last couple weeks. We've been working through a series here on vision called Horizon. And if you've learned anything from this series, it's that first and foremost, when we as a church, we talk about vision, we are talking about the great commission that Jesus has called us to. And if you boil down that great commission, we could boil it down to one phrase, and that's go and make disciples. That's the vision that Christ has given us to accomplish. That's the commission that he has given us to go and do in this world. And that's the mission that we as a people have to be committed to. Now, if you remember last week, we were were talking about um, the importance of having structure to be able to go and accomplish the vision that God has given us. And we believe that structure is culture. A good culture is important if we are going to walk in the calling that God has given us. And if you see up right here on the screen, we were working off this definition of culture last Sunday. That culture is the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution or organization. Or in other words, a culture 
is a set of values that define how an organization operates. And last Sunday, what we were walking through together is we were talking about what are the cultural values here at Corner that we want to exhibit to be able to walk in the calling that God has called us to. In fact, if you want to go to that next slide there, we, were, we talked about five core values of Corner uh, that we want to be able to exhibit as we walk in our calling. The first one we talked about last week was a culture of prayer. That we are a people that walk with God, that we, we, we know God, and that we seek God in prayer. The next one is the culture of evangelism, that we don't see our lives as just our own, but we look at our lives as opportunities. Third is the culture of discipleship, that uh, salvation is not the end, but salvation is the beginning of actually walking with God and knowing God knowing God, in a culture of community, and when we talk about community, we talked about this last week a little bit, but we don't just mean hanging out together, but we actually mean practicing the one another's together, of love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. That's what we mean by community. And finally, a culture of multiplication, meaning a culture that has a sending mindset, that we're not just hoarding here, but we are sending out to accomplish the mission that God has called us to. If you remember last week, we were talking about a culture of prayer, and that a culture of prayer is the first step to be able to accomplish vision, for it is in prayer that we actually are able to seek God and find the things that he calls us to in the moment, but it's also the power from which that we are actually able to carry out what God has called us to do. Prayer is essential. And the second thing that we're walking into this week now, we're going into the second item on that list, which is a culture of evangelism. And next week, we're going to be talking about the culture of discipleship. But before we can actually talk about evangelism, we have to understand that the second and third one on that list, evangelism and discipleship, they are intrinsically tied together. They inform each other. You can't have one without the other. You could say that evangelism and discipleship are two sides of the same coin. To have one and not the other is to fail at the mission of the church. In fact, I brought a quote with me this morning from a guy by the name of uh, Robbie Galletti. He once said this about evangelism and discipleship. He said, evangelism and discipleship are two oars attached to the same boat. With one oar in the water, you will row in a circle. Both oars are required to navigate in a straight line to reach your destination. We need evangelism and we need discipleship to carry out the Great Commission. And here's a really important line. The gospel is received through evangelism and then lived out through ongoing discipleship. The gospel is received by evangelism and then it's lived out as we walk through discipleship closer and closer and closer to Christ. We need both. A commitment to both. What's interesting today is if you look at the state of the church, what you often find is that there isn't a big imbalance that happens with these two things on these cultures of evangelism and a culture of discipleship. And typically what you have is a church will fit into one of two categories. A church will really emphasize evangelism 
or a church will really emphasize discipleship, and we would call these outward-focused churches or inward-focused churches. Outward-focused churches, sometimes in culture, are called seeker-friendly churches. How many of you have seen or heard of a seeker-friendly church before? Right? A, a, a lot of us have. And what happens in outward-focused churches is they focus on, on getting people in the doors. They focus on sharing the love of Christ, on, on being able to, on doing evangelism. But when, when people get in, that's where the depth stops. Their congregation might be a mile wide, but the congregation is only an inch deep, and they forget about the fact that salvation is not the end goal, but it's walking with Christ after salvation that what we're called to do. And the reverse is also true. On inward-focused churches, they can be really good at building up the people and teaching those people to follow Christ with the people that they have, but they forget that there's a world and a community right outside their front door that's dying and going to hell. And they forget half of the Great Commission. See, the reality is, the reason I bring this up here at the beginning, is we as a church, if we're going to carry out the Great Commission, we have to be committed to both. We have to be evangelistically focused, and we have to be discipleship focused. We have to be able to hold those two intention and balance together. Both are required. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be walking through what does a culture of evangelism look like, and next week we're going to be walking through what does a culture of discipleship look like. And what I want to do today is before we talk about evangelism, I want to give us three elements of what an evangelistic culture looks like in a church. So I'll have those listed up right here. An evangelistic culture, first and foremost, embraces its role in the community. Second is an evangelistic culture understands the needs of its community. And third, an evangelistic culture is intentional with its community. So look down at that first one there of embracing the role. Look down at your text there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where we started this morning. It says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, in this passage here, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's in a, a larger passage known as the Sermon on the Mount that stretches from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And what Jesus does here in this particular passage is he is laying out two um, physical analogies of salt and light to describe spiritual truths. And what he says to his believe, the believers here is he says, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You're salt. Now, not salty, right? You are salt. You're salt. Now, one of the questions we have to ask here as we approach this text is, why does he use salt? See, in Jesus' day, salt had many, many purposes. It wasn't just to season your food and get health problems later because you season too much salt, right? That wasn't it. Salt in Jesus' day had a very important role in culture, not just as a seasoner, but salt was a preserver, it was a preserver. They didn't have refrigeration back in that day. So what they would often do is they would take their fish, they would take their meats, and they would layer them up in salt so that the, the, the food wouldn't rot. 
And what Jesus says here in this text, he says, when it comes to your relationship to the world, if you are a believer, you are salt. You are a preserver in the midst of culture. And what he's saying with that is if you are a believer, your role is not to disengage or withdraw from culture and let the world do what the world is going to do, but your role is to engage and be a living embodiment of the gospel and hope and love to the people that are around you. See, when Jesus says to be salt here, he's talking about being committed to the mission that Christ has given us. And the reverse is also true. He says to miss being salt. To miss being a preserver in culture is to miss our purpose. In fact, Jesus goes so far to say is if salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its preserverness, if we can say that, The only thing that's left is good for is to be thrown out and left for people to trample on. That's a pretty harsh contrast. And I want to be clear with what he's saying here. He's not saying if you're not passionate about telling people about Jesus, he's going to throw you out and he's going to get rid of you. That's not what he's saying here. What Jesus is saying here is if we are not living out the gospel in front of people, if we are not being a preserver in our culture, what's going to happen is not only is culture not going to change, it's going to keep going the other way. See, culture doesn't change by voting people into, into office, either side of the aisle. That's not how culture changes. That's not going to fix anything. Culture changes when Christians embrace a radical love that Christ has given to them in the gospel and extend that same thing to other people. See, politicians will never change people. God changes people. That's the reality. And he does that through us living as salt in our communities, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our families. That's how he works. See, the first step to making an evangelistic culture is being able to embrace the role that Christ has given us to be salt, be engaged, to be a positive gospel force in our community. That's step one. The second element of an evangelistic culture is that a church understands the needs of its community. See, you can have all the best intentions, you can embrace your role, you can want to be a good influence, all of those things, but before we can reach a city or a town or a workplace or a family or whatever the case may be, we have to understand the language that they speak. I'm not necessarily talking physical, I'm talking emotional. I'm talking spiritual. I'm talking what are the hurts that are going on? What are the fears? What are they afraid of? What are their dreams? What are their hopes? What's the story of the community? See, and and ultimately we have to ask the question, how does the gospel speak into each and every one of those situations? How does the gospel speak into it? See, in addition for salt being a preserver, uh, uh, preserver, salt is also a seasoner isn't it? It's a seasoner. And if there's anything I've learned about salt and its role in seasoning food is that everyone needs a little bit of a different amount, don't they? How many of you have ever, are a big salt person, right? You like a lot of salt. How many of you are like, don't even care? Like, I won't even use it. Okay. A few of you, a few of you. It's all preferential, isn't it? It's all preferential. But how many of you have ever had a dish that had been seasoned way too much and you immediately knew it, right? Every single person. 
So this week, I was, I was making soup for dinner. Uh, one of the things about me is I absolutely love to cook. I absolutely love cooking. And Wednesdays are kind of my day uh, where I, I cook, and I'm in soup season right now. So I'm making a new soup every single week, and it's a ton of fun. And I was, on, I was online this week, and I found a squash soup recipe that looked really, really good. Most squash soups are kind of sweet. This was a spicy squash soup. So it was calling for Thai chilies and all that kind of stuff. So I went to Meyer and I went to go grab some uh, peppers, and they didn't have Thai chilies, but they did have habaneros. <laughs> they did have habaneros. Now, for those of you who uh, maybe aren't familiar with the Scoville unit of, of how... Of, peppers and heat. A jalapeno is about two to 8,000, right? So you have green pepper, you have a jalapeno pepper, and then a, a Thai chili is 75,000, okay? So there's, there's a major jump from jalapeno to uh, Thai chili. Uh, but then habaneros are two to 300,000. Okay? So the recipe called for one Thai chili, which is 75,000. So I figured a habanero, which is about 200,000, if I just do one, it kind of balances out, right? That, it works in my logic, okay? Like, so that's what I did. I, I got some habaneros, I brought them home, I start cooking everything up, I'm cutting everything up, I'm roasting the vegetables, I'm doing all the thing, I add the stuff in, I, we got this immersion blender, so you know I'm blending it all together, that's been really cool, right? So I get all that done, I get all the stuff, I, I made an apple grilled cheese, it was really good, oh man, I got all that going, right? We're getting all hungry, it's almost noon, right? right yeah, so I'm working all that stuff, and I'm like, man, this is going to be perfect, it looks it, it looks absolutely great. And Amanda comes walking in the door. I'm like, "Hon, you get the first bite. Go on and try this. <laughs> and she goes and she grabs a spoon. She, she tastes it. She goes, mm. she looks like she likes it. And then, bleh! And then when you've been cooking for two hours, the first thing you want to hear out of somebody is, bleh, right? That's what you really want to hear. She says, I love it. It tastes amazing, but it's way too spicy. What you put in here, Right? And I'm like, no, it's not spicy, it's not spicy. So I tried it. And she was absolutely, totally right. Like, absolutely, totally right. So you had this perfect fall flavor. It was absolutely, it was like, oh my goodness, like a pumpkin patch. And then all of a sudden you get punched in the face by this heavyweight boxer named Mr. Habanero, right? <laughs> now this happened because I did not offer a seasoned taste to my audience's taste buds. I went in with the best intentions to take a load off my wife so she doesn't have to cook when she comes home after working all day. Had the best intentions, but I didn't get the desired result because I didn't season the dish to what my audience needed. And church, the same is true when it comes to evangelism. The same is true. We have to understand the needs of the people around us. We have to contextualize the gospel. And I want to be very careful when I say that. I want you to notice I didn't say we have to change the gospel. That's not what I said. We cannot change the gospel. That is set in stone. We cannot change that. But we do have to contextualize the gospel to speak into the needs, the hurts, the anxieties that people have. We have to be able to season it like salt. See, if I were to stand up here and I were to say, je crois que le Seigneur Jésus est le fils de Dieu, et je crois que uh, il est uh, mort pour mon péché, et uh, si tu crois, tu peux avoir la vie éternelle. If I were to say that, would that make any sense to any single person in this room? No, it makes zero sense, unless you speak French. And if you do speak French, you're horrified by my West African accent. 
I said something good. I said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sin, and if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. That's a fantastic message, isn't it? It's a powerful truth. It's true in German. It's true in English. It's true in uh, Russian. Whatever the case may be, it's just as true as in any other language, but it benefits nobody if they don't speak the language, does it? It benefits nobody. I could sit up here and talk in French till I'm blue in the face, and it do absolutely nothing because I'm not speaking the language. I'm not speaking to the culture for where I'm at. See, we have to be able to season the gospel to what our culture needs. And in order to season the gospel to what our culture needs, we must be a part of it. You can't be withdrawn from it. See, to contextualize the gospel means we have to understand the fears of our community, the idols of our community, the dreams, the hurts, and we have to know how the gospel speaks into every single one of them. See, to be an evangelistic culture, we have to understand our culture's needs. The third one is this. An evangelistic culture is intentional within the community. Take a look down at your text again. It says this, Jesus is talking, he transitions from salt to light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If in the first illustration he talks about salt, about being a seasoner and a preserver, he switches now to light. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, light has an obvious purpose, doesn't it? It helps us see. And he says here, in the midst of the darkness of the world, in the midst of the hurts of the world, in the midst of the chaos of the world, in the midst of when people feel like they have no hope or the brokenness or the cancer or the anxiety or the depression or any of the things that are effects of living in a sin-cursed world, he says, you are the light on a hill that beckons people to find shelter. That's the role of Christians, not the role of the government. It's our job. It's us. See, I think there's no secret that our world is in a rough spot. My atheist friends, they agree and say the world's in a rough spot. My agnostic friends, they agree and say the world's in a rough spot. My conservative friends say the same thing. My uh, liberal friends say the same thing. My Muslim friends say the same thing. We all agree that the world is in a rough spot. It's dark, isn't it? It's dark. We all agree on that. No one's saying differently. The problem, I think, occurs when there are two main responses to how Christians interact with the brokenness and the darkness that's in the world. See, some Christians embrace it and celebrate what the world calls good. Celebrate it and do all the things that the world says is good. And other Christians go get so far away from it and back up and, and hide and get, you know, get down in a bunker and just hide over here and pretend it's not there and just complain about it from afar. And here's the thing. Both of those responses are just as wrong as the other. Both of those responses fail to do the job that we have been called to do. The first one fails because it looks no different from the world. 
The first one fails because it doesn't add anything to the conversation. It doesn't bring love or hope or peace into the midst of the darkness. It just celebrates it. It acts no different. And the other side fails because they are so separated and so far away from its culture that they are ineffective. And if they were to speak into it, it wouldn't even do anything. See, if in the first one, Jesus says, you can't be the light if you yourself are covering up your light or are putting it under a basket. In the second one, he's saying, you can't be the light in the room if you're not even in the same room. We have to be present. We have to be there. See, look at your text. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, look at the text. Let your light shine before others so that what? So they may see your opinions. That's not what it says. So they, they may know 101 reasons about why they're wrong. No. Or, or what their, your political views are. That's not what it is. So that they may see your what? Good works. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works. So that they may see the hope that radiates from your life when things don't go your way. How many of you have situations in life where it doesn't go your way? Right? Every single one of us. And Jesus says, when that happens in your life and you radiate hope, that changes people. When, when you're in situations where they, are, they need encouragement and you are present and you're that beacon of light, it encourages them. When you respond in love to people who mistreat you, they see that as different. They see that as fundamentally different. When you are facing uncertainty and you are able to face it with certainty and peace, that changes everything. See, being a light is not about shoving religion down people's throat. Yes, you have to stand for truth. Yes, you have to engage with people. Yes, you have to talk about the hope that's within you. But it is your good works that show people how that truth has actually changed you. And letting people see your good works is not the end result. Take a look. It's not just that they may see it, but it's give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the response that God causes when people see your good works is they recognize that something in you is different just below the surface. Something in you is different and fundamentally different because of Christ being in your life. And here's the thing. You don't get the glory. God gets the glory because he's the one working within you. And when you think about it, that's evangelism. That's what we're called to. See, church, this is, what we're called, this is the job that we've been given. We are a light on a hill. But when we as believers act no different from the world or we withdraw from culture so much that we're no longer a part of it, not only... Are we walking in a disobedience to what Christ has called us to, but we fail to embrace the role that Christ has given us to have in our community? You were made to be a lighthouse. The world wasn't made to be a lighthouse. You were made to be a lighthouse. You were made to shine Christ's love and truth into the world. That's what your job, that's my job. In fact, it's going to get uh, dark in here for one last illustration. If Mike, you want to grab the lights? I promise we pay our electric bills. It's all on time. I have one illustration here. 
When, it gets, it, when we do this, it gets dark, doesn't it? How I many of you can see really well? Probably not, right? You can't see. And I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of times in life where when it gets dark, it's really easy to trip, isn't it? It's really easy to fall. You step on a Lego or you trip over the dog or whatever the case may be. And something we have to understand is everyone in the world that doesn't know Christ, when it comes to spiritually speaking, this is what they get. This is where they are. When darkness happens, they don't see the hope. They don't see the light. They don't have the Holy Spirit guiding them. They don't have the Holy Spirit telling them how to walk through difficult situations. They don't have the Holy Spirit that's there to guide them in the midst of the troubling times. They don't have the Holy Spirit to walk them through how to conquer sin. They don't have that. It's dark. And that's why Christ says that when you became a believer, when you received the Holy Spirit, he placed inside of you a light. So people can see, so you can see. And when dark times come in your life, you are able to see what's next. You're able to walk in truth. You're able to see how to conquer sin. You're able to make a difference where you are. And it's amazing in it how much, how much one light can shine, isn't it? How many of you ever lost power at night before? And all of a sudden you're like, you're like watching like uh, TV in the living room and all of a sudden, poof, it's dark. And you grab that flashlight. It's amazing how much one light can do, isn't it? It's amazing. And maybe right now you're the only believer in your family, the only believer in your classroom or in your workplace. And it's important to be that light. Because I'll tell you something. You have so much more influence than you know. People watch you. People watch you. When difficult times come up, people watch how you respond. When uh, trials enter your life, people watch how you respond. When you are walking through a sin issue, or when you are like, you're, somebody drives you nuts and you have that temptation to blow up on them, people are watching you. You have a light. But what's amazing is you aren't alone with that. You might be alone when you walk out into the community, but we as the church, we collectively are the light. We collectively are the light. And when people arrive at the church on the corner, they should see a room full of light. In fact, I want you to, everyone to pull out their phones real quick. I want you to turn your flashlights on real quick. It's going to look like a Taylor Swift concert in here. All right, we'll just shake that one off. All right, well, we'll get there. There it goes. That's a slow burn. And look what happens. Look around. When people, when we as the church we shine the light together. When we walk into our communities together, when we embrace what God has called us to do together, it changes things, doesn't it? Because while one light can be effective, all the lights together are able to actually make an impact in a major difference in a community. And that's what Christ has called us to.
You may put your phones down here. Church, we're called to be the light. You can grab the lights up there, Mike, too. And the question is, when it comes to a culture of evangelism, will we be a church that embraces the role, understands the needs of our community, and is intentional in the way that we live? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.